Please take a moment to pray with me and for me as we read God's word together. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that you would bring us into an experience of Jesus and the Father together. In Jesus' name, amen. So my wife and I recently had the opportunity to go see the musical Hamilton. And we were really excited. We started listening to the soundtrack in preparation at home. Usually it was in the kitchen when we were getting dinner ready or maybe cleaning up afterwards. And you know, I'm, I'm no historian, but you gotta love the way that in the last couple years since Hamilton came out, it has everybody all of a sudden paying attention to US history. Like, and especially the first Secretary of State, who we had never thought very much about since that one class that we had to take in school, when all we knew was that he died in a duel, right? And all of a sudden, everybody knows something about Hamilton, including, apparently, my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. We were sitting at the table one day, and all of a sudden, she piped in, why should an island across the sea regulate the price of tea? <laughs> Which is a line from the not always kid-friendly soundtrack <laughs> of Hamilton, which we had been playing in the kitchen. Parents, please take a note. Uh, don't take a note from my book. <laughs> Your children are always listening. <laughs> but everybody knows something about Hamilton. And after I saw the musical, I wanted to know more about Hamilton. And so I, I looked, and I, I'm particularly interested in spiritual matters, and I was curious about Hamilton's spiritual life. What did, what did this guy believe? And it turns out that at least early in his life, and, and maybe also later in his life, he had some kind of Christian convictions. But for much of the middle productive period of his life, his, during his political career, he espoused, it seems, something more like the philosophy of his age. It was a philosophy espoused by many of the founding fathers known as deism. Deism wasn't it wasn't necessarily a set of religious beliefs. It was more just a, a philosophy of how God interacted with the world. And the idea in deism was that God, if he exists at all, created the world, put together its natural laws and set everything in order, and then let it go. And he watches maybe from afar. For the deists, if there is one God and father of us all, He's at something of an absentee father. And we are more or less spiritual orphans left to fend for ourselves in the world. Now, 18th century deism is no longer widely held, but it turns out there is a modern form of deism that is making a comeback. In 2005, a sociologist named Christian Smith did a survey of 3,000 teenagers to find out what they believed about God and religion, and, and what were their spiritual beliefs. And he found some really interesting themes as he did this research. He, he put together kind of a composite belief system based on these surveys, and he called it moralistic therapeutic deism. It was moralistic because people thought that God wants us to be kind to one another and fair to one another, and that good people go to heaven when they die. It was therapeutic because they believed that the main purpose of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Here's the interesting one to me. It was deistic, which is to say that 
they believed that God wasn't necessarily involved in the day-to-day life of people. Nor does he really need to be, unless maybe you're in some kind of intense crisis. Different philosophical underpinnings, but more or less the same result. We are spiritual orphans, they said. Now, you may not be a deist, per se, but perhaps you know the feeling of wondering if you are a spiritual orphan in the world. Perhaps you've read the stories of the Old Testament and you see the miracles, you see the works of Jesus, and you say, wow, if only I could have lived at that time. Does God do those things anymore? I think in a lot of our churches, I've I've noticed that even though we know that God is active in the world, we think that maybe, especially in North America, we think that maybe he still does amazing things in Africa or Asia or places that are far away, but we wonder, is he still here with us? Does he still work here today? Now, if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. In fact, even the Bible, there were times where God's people wondered, has God abandoned us? I wonder if maybe Jesus' disciples even would have felt that way before Jesus came along. Think about it. The nation of Israel, God's special people, were an occupied people. The temple had never had, never had that same visible manifestation of God's presence there that it had before the exile. Where were the miracles? Where were the prophets teaching God's law? Had God abandoned them? And then Jesus comes on the scene and he teaches God's law with authority. And he does miracles. He heals people. And his disciples, as they spend time with him, experience the love of God flowing from him. It's no wonder that they were so eager to follow him. And then one day, Jesus tells them that he's going to leave them. And and not only that, it seems like he wants them to carry on his ministry after he's left them. How are they supposed to do that? He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. How are they supposed to obey his commandments without him there to guide them, to show them what he wants from them? Are they going to be spiritual orphans again? Jesus' answer is an emphatic no. In John chapter 14, verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Jesus here is foreshadowing the giving of the Holy Spirit that's going to happen. Most scholars agree that when he says, yet in a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me, that he's actually talking about his post-resurrection appearance to the disciples. And that's why he says, because I live, you also will live. Because he's risen again, they'll know that there is a resurrection. And that's what happens. In John chapter 20, after he rises again, he appears to his disciples, and, and he does something strange. He breathes on them, it says. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is what he's talking about here. 
This is the context that Jesus already has in mind. He already knows that that's going to happen. And that is what he's leading them into in John chapter 14. The Emmanuel Summer Sermon Series is Jesus Lead Us, Following Jesus to the Promised Land. And today we're talking about Jesus leading us to the Holy Spirit. And here's the big idea that we're going to unpack together. The Holy Spirit brings us into an experience of Jesus and the Father. Let that sink in. The Holy Spirit brings us into an experience of Jesus and the Father. I didn't just say knowledge of Jesus and the Father. I said an experience of Jesus and the Father. It's like the difference between taking a music theory class and understanding the way music works and the way it moves us and then hearing the beautiful symphony. The knowledge is important. It helps us understand what's happening. It helps us appreciate the experience, but it is not a replacement for the experience. And this is what the Holy Spirit ministers to us. So first we're going to talk about who the Holy Spirit is. It's going to be a crash course because we could spend a whole sermon series on that. But who the Holy Spirit is and then his specific work in the life of the believer. So first, who is the Holy Spirit? That's a harder question to answer than you might think because most often in the Bible when it talks about the Holy Spirit, it says more about what the Holy Spirit does than who the Holy Spirit is. But we're going to see what we can gather from John chapter 14. So let's look at verses 15 to 17 together. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So we see that the Holy Spirit is someone who is going to be sent from the Father. And he's specifically sent to those who love Jesus. Note this, if you love me, the outcome of loving Jesus is you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The Holy Spirit is sent specifically to Jesus' followers. The world cannot receive him. The world cannot know them. The Holy Spirit's ministry is for them. And Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to be with them forever. In fact, not just with them, but in them. Now, you may wonder, well, was it only in them? No. We find out if we read later in the Bible, it's in all of us who have believed in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, when Peter's speaking to the crowds, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The Holy Spirit is described as a helper in this passage. Jesus says he will send you another helper. Now, that word helper is tricky because the, in the original language, the, the New Testament was written in Greek, and, and the word that's there doesn't have an exact equivalent. It has the idea of somebody who comes alongside for assistance. So helper is actually a pretty decent translation, except that in English it has some connotations of inferiority or subservience, right? Like helper. I think Santa's little helper 
That's what comes to mind, right? You've got Santa, he's the main guy, the man with the plan, and then he's got all these little elves and mall Santas. And they're, they're helpful, but they're not indispensable. Santa could still do Santa's thing if he lost an elf. They, they just help Santa be more effective. That's not the kind of help that the Holy Spirit gives us. The kind of help that the Holy Spirit gives us is indispensable help. Let me give you a different vision of helper. Have any of you been following what's been happening in Thailand with the team of the soccer team of 12 young boys and their coach who've been trapped in a cave? And they were there without, without any hope of escape, without access to food. And the Thai Navy and some international divers have all come together to try to help them escape. And I found out this morning that actually two of them have gotten out, at least the last time I checked. They decided they couldn't wait any longer, and these divers went in, and they, they went two to a boy, and they were going to bring them out of the cave together. Those divers were helpers for those boys. The Holy Spirit helps us in the way that oxygen helps us breathe. He does something that we cannot possibly do on our own. He's called another helper, which implies that there was a previous helper. And in the context of this passage where Jesus is passing on the baton, the implication is Jesus was that first helper. And as he is going on to the Father, he is giving them another helper who's going to work in continuity with Jesus. And we see this in the New Testament. If it weren't the Holy, for the Holy Spirit, I would give the apostles, knowing what we know about them, maybe two weeks, a month, before everything fell apart. But somehow the Holy Spirit empowers them to be this unstoppable force. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel goes out into all the world. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit, there is a community in Uptown called Emmanuel Anglican Church 2,000 years after Jesus rose from the dead. How can the Spirit do this? How can he do God's work in the world? Well, the short answer is because he's God. As the early church looked at the, the Old Testament and Jesus' teachings and his apostles' teachings, they realized there was some tension there. That it was clear there was only one God, but somehow the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit all did things that only God was supposed to be able to do. There was a sense in which they, they almost, the, the biblical writers almost talked about them interchangeably, but, but they were different. They were distinct. And so the formula that the church came up with was God existing as one God internally in three persons. And those three persons are so deeply interconnected with one another, sharing the same divine essence and the same divine purpose that Jesus is able to say in last week's reading, you may recall, Philip asks him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So there's this interconnectedness in the Trinity, and the Spirit shares in that interconnectedness. Now, why is this important? Well, this is important for understanding what the Spirit does in the life of the believer. Remember how I said that the Spirit dwells in the believer, right? And then I said that there is an interconnectedness between the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Father. 
So what this means is that in the same way that Jesus was able to give his disciples an experience of the Father, the Holy Spirit is able to minister to us an experience of Jesus and the Father. Does that make sense? And he doesn't just do it in a generalized way. He does it in very specific ways. He enables us to experience very specific qualities of Jesus and the Father. And that's what we're going to look at today in John chapter 14. How does he help us experience Jesus and the Father? Well, first, he enables us to experience the presence of Jesus and the Father. John 14, 20 says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. There's that mutual indwelling. And suddenly, we are brought into that life of the Trinity. Now, you may wonder, why is that a big deal that he ministers the presence of God? God is everywhere, right? Like, we, we say that God is omnipresent. He, he's, he's literally everywhere. Let me give you a probably poor analogy that I hope will help. It's like the difference between saying, I was at the same coffee shop as that girl I have a crush on, and I had coffee with the girl I have a crush on. Do you see the difference there? The first one is we share the same physical location. And the second one, when you have coffee with someone, when I have coffee with my wife, we're sharing an experience. There's a deeper level of presence. There's an emotional presence, even a spiritual presence that we enjoy with one another. And what happens is the Holy Spirit brings us into that kind of presence. We share our lives with God. We share our sorrows with God, our joys. And God shares his life with us. We are brought into that relationship that Jesus enjoys with the Father. As Jesus is the beloved son of the Father, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. We share this beautiful presence through the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, the Holy Spirit enables us to experience the love of Jesus and the Father. Reading on in, in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the father will love him and he will come to him and we will make our home with him. Now, to be frank, this passage used to bother me because it seemed to imply that somehow God's love for us is contingent upon our obedience to him. Did anybody else get that sense as we're reading that? I want to clear something up real quick. Jesus never here says that we somehow earn God's love by obedience. He says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. It's the natural outpouring of love. If we love God, we're going to do the things that he cares about. But there's even more to it than that. What are Jesus' commandments? If you look at the beginning of your bulletin today, you see the two most important ones. Somebody asked him, what are the most important commandments? And he said, love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. For God, love is so central to his activity, to who he is, that even his commandments really have to do with love. His commandments are actually an invitation into his love. Love God, love others. But here's the problem. In our natural state, that is not what we want to do. We harden our hearts against God's love and we prefer other things to fill those desires that God placed in us for him. But what does the Holy Spirit do? He softens our hearts towards God. He enables us to be obedient to the Father. He enables us to love God and love others, to say yes to God and fully experience his unconditional love. That's something only the Holy Spirit can do in a person. He also enables us to experience the teaching of Jesus and the Father. John 14, 25 to 26 says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. When I was uh, a very young boy, I was inquisitive, and I would ask my parents a lot of questions. And if they didn't know the answer, sometimes they would say, you know what? You can ask Jesus when you get to heaven. And in my young mind's eye, I envisioned heaven as a place where there was this long line before the throne of God with all the people with their questions lining up to find out the answers to what their parents wouldn't tell them. I wanted to hear the teaching of Jesus. I wanted to know what Jesus knew. Jesus' disciples wanted that. They wanted wanted to, to hear from him, to be taught by him. They didn't want that to stop. And he's saying it's not gonna stop. The Holy Spirit is going to continue to teach you. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the prophets in the Old Testament. He's the one who enabled the disciples to recall everything Jesus taught and everything Jesus did so that we could have them recorded in the Gospels. He inspired the writers of the epistles. Then, as if that's not enough, he helped the church understand those writings. And he helps us apply them to our lives. He convicts us and challenges us. If you've ever had an experience of reading the Bible or hearing a sermon and feeling like it's speaking right to you, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. He brings us into an experience of the teaching of Jesus and the Father. And finally, the Holy Spirit enables us to experience the peace of Jesus and the Father. Jesus says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The world offers a certain kind of peace that is based on circumstances. If you have the right job and you have the the right resources to secure the right living situation in the right part of town, you will have peace, says the world. But Jesus was different. When he was with his disciples, when there was a storm raging around them, he was at peace in the will of the Father. He brought peace with him into the turbulent places, into the messy places, into the dark places. He brought peace with him. And he says, I am going to give this peace to you. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit 
can minister that peace to us. I'm a walking testimony of that. A couple of years ago, I had a situation, a life circumstance that, that came into our lives that we weren't prepared for and that I thought was essentially stealing away everything that I hoped to get out of the next couple of years of my life. And I was deeply distressed. I asked a brother and a sister at church to pray for me, and they prayed with me and for me and anointed me with oil and asked for the peace and joy of the Holy Spirit to be released in me. Nothing happened while they were praying for me. I didn't, I didn't feel anything. But I was driving home, and I caught myself. I, I didn't realize it until I was halfway home that I was singing. And nothing had changed. The situation was still the same situation, but somehow I knew that God was with me and it was going to be okay. That is the kind of peace that the Holy Spirit can minister to our hearts from Jesus and the Father. Now, it's important for us to understand that this work of the Holy Spirit is wonderful. God intends it for your benefit. He intends for you to experience him in this way but it doesn't end with that. Jesus said that the world can't know the ministry of the Spirit. The world can't receive the ministry of the Spirit. How are they going to know that they're not spiritual orphans? How are they going to know that God works in the world? His work is invisible to them. Well, the wind is also invisible. And the way that we know that the wind moves is when it moves a flag on a flagpole. And it may be that God is calling you to be that visible experience of the Holy Spirit's work in someone's life. God may be calling you to bring that to your neighbors and your friends and your family who, who otherwise may never encounter the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. God is calling you to bring his presence into their lives. God is calling you to bring his love into their lives, his teaching his peace. God wants you to fill you with his Holy Spirit so that you in turn can make him known in the world. This is part of our mission. This is why Jesus was telling them this when he's about to leave. God desires for everyone to experience him by the Holy Spirit. And, and there may even be some in this room who've never experienced the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you know something about Jesus, you, you, you've, you've gone to church, but, but you've never really received him as your Lord. You've never turned away from your old way of life and embraced him and received the Holy Spirit. But maybe while you've been here at Emmanuel, you've seen his, his work in people's lives. And, and as we're talking, you may feel this longing in your heart to receive him. God wants you to experience him today through that Holy Spirit. There may be others in the room who have the Holy Spirit. You know that you have the Holy Spirit. You have a full intellectual acknowledgement of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. But maybe in the back of your mind or the back of your heart, you still have some doubts about whether God could really work in a way that you can discern in the world. You may still feel like a spiritual orphan. There may be others of you who are all in, and you're ready to change the world. You're ready to speak for the poor and for the marginalized, for those with no voice. You're ready to teach the Bible. But you're so tired 
because you've been carrying your ministry on your own two shoulders and you feel that if you make one misstep, you're going to slip and fall and it's all going to crumble. And you need the power of the Holy Spirit for the mission that God has given you. Wherever you are on that spectrum, I want you to know that God is real and he is here and he wants you to experience him. In all his fullness, he wants you to experience him. And there's no specific formula for this. I wish I could tell you specific words to say in a specific posture so that all of a sudden you would have this experience of the Holy Spirit. But I do know that the Bible tells us that we can ask God for the work of the Holy Spirit. We can ask him to work in our lives. In Luke 11, Jesus says, if you, are, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Paul in Corinthians takes it a step further. He encourages, encourages us to ask for specific gifts. He says he wishes that all of the Corinthian church spoke in tongues. He encouraged them to desire the gift of prophecy. What is it that the Lord wants to give you for the mission to which he's called you? I don't want to manipulate you into some kind of spiritual experience. I want you to receive whatever it is that God has for you, whatever experience of God that he wants to give you today. And I want you to be prepared to receive it. Father, I pray for this, your people, your church. I thank you that you know and see every one of us. Lord, open our hearts. Open us to the work of your Holy Spirit. May we experience you and everything that you offer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.